Lawrence started pedaling again and rode past that building, a spiraling flock of alert fedoras, prodding at slim, terse notebooks with stately ticonderogas, crab-walking photogs turning their huge chrome daisies, crisp rows of people sleeping with blankets over their faces, a sweating man with brilliantined hair chalking umlauted names on a blackboard. Finally, coming around this building, he smelled hot fuel oil, felt the heat of the flames on his face, and saw beach grass. Holy shit. <laughs> you know why that was easy? Because <laughs> we're in the same space. We're in the same room. Holy crap. My God. Yeah. Upper middle brow in the, uh, yeah, the recording studio of... Castle bag. Castle bag. Dungeon bag? Dungeon bag. Dungeon bag. <laughs> yeah. With egress windows. Yep. Uh, and, and multiple exits, actually. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can, I mean, you know, if it if the rest of the house fell down on top of me, I'd, I'd, uh, I can see right now I'm aware of one, two, three... Uh, four potential exits, five even, one, two, three, four, five, and I think one more, six potential it's exits. You're like, uh, you're like uh, one of our characters in the book. You're, you're counting the exits. Right. Stay it's in, sort of Bobby Shafto. Stay insane. Yeah. Uh, welcome, everybody. This is Upper Middle Brow. We are reading, um, we're reading Cryptonomicon, uh, the last of our mini Stevenson series. Thank God. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is the first Cryptonomicon. We're going to do it in three. Um, and I'm in Portland, Oregon, where Chris Bagg lives. Uh, I flew to Seattle for a wedding on Bainbridge Island. Congratulations to Catherine, one of our um, pilot listeners who got married uh, last weekend. And then I took the Amtrak to Portland. And Chris Bagg picked me up and... We both worked from his apartment yesterday and then also more or less today. And that brings us to right now. And then we hit record and we started talking. And yeah, here we are. Um, yeah. When you said uh, our final, you know, like we're, we're doing our final Stevenson book. Um, we're going to try to hold off the burnout. We're even going to talk about it a little bit. Yeah. But uh, we do have. This plus two more full episodes of Phil yes. Stevenson yes. uh, to get through. And, and listener, we both are still uh, definitely pretty stoked on Stevenson, and hopefully that will come out. But boy, we have read a lot of him yes. <laughs> the last two or three months. I think you added it up. We're pretty, we're around 2,500 pages of Stevenson. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, it may even be more than that, right? Snow Crash is like 800 pages. Diamond Age is like... Snow Crash is like 500. 500. Diamond Age is like 600. Cryptonomicon is 1,000. Diamond Age isn't longer than that. And then there was Zodiac. Yeah. Uh, pages is subjective anyway, because that has to do with font. Really, we should be talking in words. <laughs> the objective measure. Uh, I know, I when, uh, when I was uh, earlier this summer, um, you, you know, um, one of the things, listener, that you have to deal with is Jesse and I talking about the writing projects we're working on. And I was like, holy crap, I think I'm headed for a novel. And then what do you do? You like, you go and be like, how many words does a novel need to be? And it's like, like a mid-sized novel is like 76, 75 to yeah. 80,000 words. I think once you cross 50,000, you're in novel, novel range. Territory. Yeah, yeah, Gatsby and, is something like, Gatsby is only like 62,000 words. Yeah, and, and, and 
Uh, and shorter than that, and you would be maybe sort of in novella yeah, range. Yeah, maybe in, uh, like, Goodbye Columbus, uh, which is my favorite novella. Yeah. Um, but Neil Stevenson looks at seventy to 80,000 words and says, Pish posh. Part one. <laughs> yeah, Part the first. <laughs> If not even like book one, book one of book one of part one. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's one thing I like about him. To be honest, uh, the the prolificness makes him a fun writer to read and talk about too. Um, my feeling is that if Upper Middle Brow continues, as I hope it will, we may get into some latter Stevenson at some point. Well, should we get right back into the recap uh, yeah, since we yeah, do have another let's, taping? Uh, um, let's, let's do it because uh, we, we have a uh, we have a little um, fun exploration of writers as basketball players that we're going to get to probably at some point today. But um, yeah, we're going to jump into the recap of... Uh, this book, which is a late 1990s book. I 99, mean, I think. 99 uh, is, is when it came out. Um, you know, when we start talking about Stevenson's uh, discography, um, as we said, <laughs> it, it, it does it does get a little odd with side projects and books that he wrote with his uncle. But yeah, I think it's safe to call this the fourth full solo novel. Fourth full major novel on a major imprint. Solo novel. Yeah, that, that would be right. So oh, it's basically right. Zodiac, Snow Crash, The Diamond Age, Cryptonomicon. This was the first one I read. Uh, and I think I probably read it around 2002 or so. I may have even read it one of the summers we worked together. I think actually, you know, this is interesting. We may have, you might have been reading it and I might have read it because of that. Yeah. Because I had read Snow Crash in high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, astute listeners will remember that then I went right onto the Diamond Age and was pretty confused by it. <laughs> uh, read Zodiac in there somewhere, and then I don't think I came back around until you were reading Cryptonomicon in 2002. Yep. And I definitely enjoyed it very much the first time. Um, so in terms of plot recap, we essentially, well, this goes back to my thing last time with the Diamond Age, which is I, I sometimes feel like Stevenson wants to write two books at the same time. And this time he actually figured out a good way to do that, <laughs> which is to have two plots. Uh, and we're weaving back and forth between the plots. One is set in World War II era, starting around 1940, 1941. The other uh, is happening in the mid to late 1990s, which was basically the now of when the book was written. A very kind of silicon.com sort of now. Do you want to orient us to the World War II uh, yeah, sure. characters in Basic Quest? And maybe I'll talk about the other characters. Yeah. Um... So we've got two main characters in the World War II period. We have Corporal Bobby Shafto, uh, who in true Stevenson fashion, we have a kick-ass opening uh, pageant where we find in short order a, um, a, a running board riding Marine named Corporal Bobby Shafto. Also in the location of the climax to the Diamond Age, by the way. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Again, I mean, this goes back to last episode when we're like, when are these over? Like, yeah, but 150 years earlier. But yeah, um, um, but uh, we meet Corporal Bobby Shafto riding on the running board of a marine truck, um, trying to get across uh, Shanghai. Yeah, yeah. Um, at the time of day when all of the banks are trading their basically their commercial paper. Right. Um, this is the beginning of Stevenson's obsession with uh, currency, right. uh, which then we see in later books uh, unfolding more. 
but um, and uh, Corporal Bobby Shafto composes haiku uh, right. while ordering his men to do marine things. Um, and so it's a very uh, it's a very Stevenson construction. Shafto is a marine through and through, but also more maybe more sophisticated, open minded, and thoughtful than your average marine. Yeah. Even though he has all the admirable marine qualities, like being a badass and being willing to fight at any time, and being incredibly loyal to the corps and service. Which is why I'm not crazy about his depiction in the audiobook, mm. where he sort of made. He's, he's, his, uh, his vocal characteristics in the audiobook, he's kind of turned into, like, a, it's kind of incongruous. Giving him a kind of a northern Alabama accent. Yeah. Um, and he grew up in Wisconsin, although we are made to understand that his family, and I've met people in the Midwest like this. This is a somewhat realistic, and, and Stevenson's a Midwesterner, too. His family kind of retained their some aspect of their southern Appalachian drawl. They were originally from eastern Tennessee, which is super Appalachian. Um, but yeah, that accent doesn't sound like any Southern accent I've ever heard other than maybe Alabama, Mississippi. And it, unfortunately, and I'm, I'm sure there are physicists out there with this accent, but it is an accent in America that's associated with kind of slowness and yeah. stupidity. And Bobby Shafto is not stupid. And, and that's, I mean, that's, that's a very small qualm, but as, I, as listening to the audiobook, um, that Bobby Shafto is so different than the one that I kind of thought of mm. when I was reading this book for the first time. But anyway, Shafto's role, uh, he's, he's a Marine and he's kind of like the hapless protagonist of the book. Uh, a lot of plot elements bounce off of him. Right. Uh, things happen to him. Yeah, things happen to him. He is basically, um, he's sort of the emotional center of the book because... Uh, he's the one who ends up in the most physical danger. Uh, and so we end up going on some pretty hair-raising and fun escapades with him right. uh, that we're going to talk about a bunch. But we, we first meet him in the Atlantic, uh, the Pacific Theater of World War II. Um, and he gets in some trouble uh, at the Battle of Guadalcanal. It's not totally clear what there has are, happened. There are continuous flashbacks yeah. um, during which the story is eventually kind of told. Uh, but and we know um, most of his uh, his his brothers in service are killed or injured. He's one of the very few survivors of a terrible attack. And he sees a man eaten by a, what we imagine to be a Komodo dragon. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, he, in short order, moves from the Pacific Theater after he returns home and gets reassigned after his injury to the Atlantic and North African Theater where he is going to bounce off of the other characters in that plot arc. Um, but After being interviewed by a young Lieutenant Ronald Reagan. <laughs> who in the audiobook is portrayed excellently It's a pretty well. good Reagan. It's yeah. really good. It's a yeah. great Reagan. Yeah. Um, uh, especially because it's a young Reagan who doesn't have to watch what he says as right. much. Uh, that is a very funny scene, Yes, <laughs> I gotta say. Um, so uh, Corporate Bobby Shafto is one of our characters in World War II. Um, and then his foil uh, slash opposite is Lawrence Pritchard, Pritchard Waterhouse, uh, who is kind of a another Midwesterner, pipe organ savant and math savant, uh, who ends up at Princeton for a semester. One suspects perhaps cognitively abnormal. Yeah, right. In, Mildly. Uh, yeah, in the in in his particular time period, he probably would have gotten labeled as a subnormal. <laughs> 
which is not great. And right. these days would probably have been diagnosed with a learning difference. Or autism, perhaps, or something Asperger's like that. Something yeah. Like that. yeah. Um, there's there's a, a whole bunch of well-executed depictions of him not picking up on social cues very right. well. He gets this uh, one-year um, scholarship to attend Princeton and is described as being sort of like, amazingly ungrateful <laughs> and not that he's mean about it. He's just sort of like, okay, well, that's cool. I'll go to a college in another state. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he spends that year, uh, meeting Alan Turing, uh, and some other famous, uh, mathematicians, um, and sort of like Shafto Lawrence's place in the novel is to be pretty good at things to almost understand them but then not quite enough so that other characters have to explain things to him and therefore the reader begins to understand them. He's an excellent mathematician and codebreaker, you know, a, a peer of Alan Turing, and I forget the name of the guy in the bathrobe, but the sort of famous American codebreaker. Uh, uh, that is uh, Captain Schoen. Right, who I believe um, is a real person. Really? Yeah, I, oh. think, I think that's based on a real character. Or, oh. or at least he's based, there was a fellow like that who wandered around in a bathrobe and broke the Japanese codes and is somewhat responsible for the victory during Midway. Oh, wow, uh, but, I did not know that. But that doesn't surprise me, knowing Stevenson's appetite for a research and uh, and B verisimilitude. Apparently, there's a photo of him reading about code breaking in World War II at age 11. Stevenson. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, the first edition of Cryptonomicon shipped with that in the author in the jacket. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, we should have said that this is a novel essentially about math and code breaking. Right. <laughs> that is the uh, the big central idea of at least the plot of the earlier part of the book trying to break the Japanese and German code machines so that the Allies can win the war. By the end of the first third of the book, Shafto is in North Africa and Pritchard Waterhouse is in England, uh, though he then gets, uh, he starts getting kind of shuttled around Northern Europe. Um, yeah, and I think I would add two things to that. Um, and so one is is that both Shafto and Lawrence are assigned to a joint military operation, Detachment 2702. Well, after it was 2701. It was originally 2701. And why did they not use that? Because uh, Lawrence figured out that that was the product of two primes, and that might draw attention from the German codebreaker Rudolf von Hackel. Burger, Hocken, 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 Rudy, as they call him. John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Yeah, he was, uh, he was a buddy of Alan, um, more than a buddy of buddy. Alan, <laughs> uh, and friends with uh, uh, Lawrence back at Princeton. So um, essentially the point of uh, Detachment 2702 is a little hard. I think I don't, I don't think I even really understood this the first time I read this book in my 20s. Uh, the Allies have broken the Germans' code Enigma, which is a machine code based on mechanical wheels that makes it so no um, no number will refer to the same letter twice in the same missive, thus making frequency analysis impossible. You know, so like you and I can maybe break a code if we look at a bunch of numbers and we're like, oh, the number that appears most often is likely an E or maybe an R or maybe an S. And that that gets you started and you sort of piece it together. Doesn't work with Enigma. But the Allies have figured out a way to break Enigma essentially by building a giant rudimentary computer 
uh, designed by Alan Turing, but they want to keep this a secret because they want the Germans to keep using Enigma um, so that they can know what the Germans are up to beforehand. So they don't want to know that the code has been broken. This was, by the way, also the premise of that movie that came out a few years ago with Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, um, not a beautiful mind. Um, um, we'll remember it something. It's some some name. Also, uh, Kate Winslet, which may have been why I was too distracted to remember the name. She's a sure. rather distracting presence. Um, so, so essentially. Uh, Detachment 2702's job is to make it harder for Rudy and the German mathematicians to figure out that the Allies have broken their codes by creating kind of plausible excuses and alibis for why the Allies will have certain bits of information. So this includes building a fake observation station somewhere like in the Italian hills uh, to spy on the uh, Mediterranean and then having that station discovered by the Germans and evacuating it. And it also includes building a fake Huff-Duff, high-frequency uh, direction-finding station on a fictitious island that is spelled something like Q-W-L-G-H-M. I may have added or subtracted a, uh, a letter, a consonant there, which according to the narrator of the audiobook is pronounced Tagum. I have always, in my brain, it was always clam. <laughs> uh, but it's sort of a joke on sort of like Jersey, Guernsey, Isle of Man with a little bit of like Wales with a little bit of Ireland thrown into it. And it is, uh, um, it's part of the British Empire. It has its own duke. And um, in the last chapters of the first third, um, Lawrence Waterhouse has been assigned. He's detached to a castle there where he kind of operates this fake huffed-off antenna and pretends to be looking uh, for submarines. It, it, all of that reminds me that, like, like, we always know we're in Stevenson Place when there's a fair amount of, like, cultural, like... Basically, like pastiching happening. Yeah, a lot of bar like, humor. Yeah, there's a lot of like, like, mm, I wonder if like the people who live on the Isle of Jersey feel okay with that. Right, like, right. But, uh, and that's not yeah. by far the worst example oh, no. No, no, of no, that, no. that sort right. of thing in this book. I'm bringing that up to, uh, to you know, as a stepping stone to the next topic. Right. But um, let's, well, should I go into the '90s plot? Into the '90s plot. Okay, so so the two main characters of the '90s plot are Randy Waterhouse, the grandson of Lawrence Waterhouse, uh, and Avi, whose last name I'm not remembering right now, or Avi, I think, is the uh, the narrator insists on calling him, and Randy and. Avi, Avi, or I'm going to say Avi. That's what I think that name, how that name is pronounced. Randy and Avi are old college buddies. They used to play role-playing games together. And they had some kind of business relationship that went south. Randy was interested in being an academic, but instead ended up being a technologist, basically a computer programmer. And Randy and Avi are going into business in the Philippines, building um, uh, networking systems, basically tying the Philippines to the internet in more robust ways. Um, but they also have a secondary sub-business that they're launching while launching this first business that has venture capital backing behind it. And that involves building a data haven, not actually in the Philippines, but in a fictitious island called, what's the name of the fictitious? Kinakuta? Say it again. Kinakuta. That's right. A Kinakuta, which is a sultanate um, that is located near the Philippines, but is um, independent. So they're also, they've, they've met somebody there named America Shafto, 
um, who is presumably a niece or grand niece or something of Bob or or granddaughter or granddaughter because her her dad is um, uh, Douglas MacArthur Shafto, Shafto, who by the by the oh who is probably the child of Glory and Bobby. Yes, because we. because we we know by the first third of the book that Shafto has a real thing for Douglas MacArthur, a negative thing. Yeah. Um, and so there's no way that when we meet Douglas MacArthur Shafto, we're like, ah, something changes for Bobby for sure. And Bobby's um, girlfriend at the time is Glory, who is a uh, sort of a upper class uh, Filipina a woman who's studying to be a nurse. And so we might conclude that they've made a baby and then a grandchild. So so the, the Waterhouses and Shaftos have been reunited uh, in the 90s. Um, and um, essentially, we just hear some adventures they're having, largely from Randy's perspective. Again, Randy is kind of a hapless protagonist. He is along for the ride. He is a competent engineer, a computer engineer and technologist. But Avi is kind of the protagonist who takes action uh, at this point in the book and is basically negotiating both the primary business, Epiphyte 1, and the sort of real secret fun business, Epiphyte 2, which is building a data haven in Kinakuta, which is basically a place where anybody can store their data without worrying about the government cracking into it. Um, and it's, it's a Swiss bank for information. It's a Swiss bank for information. And I don't know, anything you want to add uh, to, to the 90s plot? No. Uh, like you said, Avi is kind of the Captain Happen. He is the brash, um, blurt out... Uh, like just hell bent for action. Uh, he's the character that you want. He's the Steve Jobs, and Randy is the Steve Wozniak. Yeah, exactly. And you you want a Steve Jobs in right. your novel. Oh sure. Probably not as your main character, but you really want it or somebody around who is basically um, you know sand in the oyster yeah. um, to to get that pearl made. Well, he also advances the plot yeah. because That's Randy what, is yeah. sort of. Culturally, he's not really a business guy, and he's also out of place in the Philippines. He really wouldn't be able to launch a business. He wouldn't know whose palms to grease and what papers to fill out and which airport to fly into. He sort of trusts Avi to manage all of that. Um, and we get the sense, too, that he was in kind of a bummer of a relationship with Christine, an uh, academic. Charlene. Oh, Charlene, sorry. Charlene, yeah, yeah. Uh, Stevenson gives her the, the dowdiest of dowdy names. Charlene. Uh, and apologies, so- Charlene's. Uh, sorry, Charlene of the world. Um, he, he was kind of just looking for a way out of his relatively comfortable but kind of boring life in Central California where he, you know, I think probably made six figures as the like tech guy for a mid, you know, a fair to middling company. Uh, so he's looking for adventure, I think. And that's kind of why he's, he's, you know, dumped Charlene or has been dumped by Charlene or has allowed his relationship to come to a graceful end and sort of, as know, graceful as, you know, abandoning your partner for the Philippines. Well, I, don't know this, that I think that it was not long for this world, right? Yeah. Like that, that marriage or that relationship was in its end stages, it seems like anyway. Yeah. Um, so um, anything to add about that or should we get right back and get, get into your reading? Yeah, I, I just I just dumped this reading in here because I really do think this, this is from very early in the book. Um, this is a book about math. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that is obvious, um, but it's a book about pattern recognition um, because it's, it's cryptography um, and I do think that the best parts of this book are when Stevenson allows his more uh, his show don't tell um, 
instincts come out. Yeah. Because Stevenson does do a lot of telling. Yep. That's his thing. Yep. Um, but there are moments, and this gets picked up again when um, Lawrence is taking the train from London to Bletchley Park. Mm-hmm. And there are these beautiful sections about describing the wires that basically, um, that basically wire England. Again, um, that fascination for- with infrastructure and particularly subterranean, the infrastructure we don't see, the hidden infrastructure. Um, so this is from early in the book. This is a, I think this is the second chapter of the book uh, called Barons. Mm-hmm. The basic problem for Lawrence was that he was lazy. He had figured out that everything was much simpler if, like Superman with his X-ray vision, you just stared through the cosmetic distractions and saw the underlying mathematical skeleton. Once you found the math in a thing, you knew everything about it, and you could manipulate it to your heart's content with nothing more than a pencil and a napkin. He saw it in the curve of the silver bars on his glockenspiel, saw it in the catenary arch of a bridge, and in the capacitor-studded drum of an Atanasoff and Barry's computing machine. Actually pounding on the glockenspiel, riveting the bridge together, or trying to figure out why the computing machine wasn't working were not as interesting to him. Consequently, he got poor grades. And what I love about that is, um, like a lot of Stevenson, you get the combination of the abstract and the concrete uh, in two places. Like, you get this sort of high-flying, really lovely paragraph um, that has some sort of high-arching ideas. And then we get brought down to the earth with, and consequently, he got bad grades because of it. It reminds me a little bit of the line in Snow Crash where they said if hero protagonists were to get a report card for his time in Silicon Valley, his teachers would say, hero is so intelligent, but really has a hard time working with us. He needs to work on working with others or something like that. It means a different sort of thing, but there's this similar smart person who doesn't quite fit into the world around him. Yeah, totally. That is a, that is a trope of Stevenson's which I think is probably a really good place to get to your next point. Right, yeah. Um, I guess the question I was wondering is who at this table is feeling a little bit of Stevenson burnout? (laughs) Both hands. We're both both raising our hands. Both hands are up. I'm a little bit Stevensoned out, I have to say. I mean, I'm going to make it through this one to the point where I have a reading queued up too because part of the reason I'm queuing this up is I think... A few weeks ago, before having ingested something like 200,000 of Stevenson penned words, um, I would have loved this section. And I found this is a section also in that same chapter, the Pine Barrens chapter, where uh, Lawrence uh, Waterhouse, Alan Turing, and Rudy have gone for a bike ride. And Rudy and Alan are in their tent um, getting it on. (laughs) And uh, Lawrence sort of takes a walk. And then... It's sort of unclear if he stumbles onto a beach somewhere near Sandy Hook or falls asleep and has a dream. It's a strange section. Um, it's wonderful, but it's I was like, what the fuck is happening? Exactly. So so in this moment, he imagines something that looks like both a, a fuel refinery slash uh, Air Force Base on the beach. And he looks down and there are people running around. There's like a rocket being built. There are flares and fires. And I'm just going to read you this part. A thousand sailors in white were standing in a ring around the long flame. One of them held up his hand and waved Lawrence down. 
Lawrence came to a stop next to the sailor and planted one foot on the sand to steady himself. He and the sailor stared at each other a moment, and then Lawrence, who could not think of anything else, said, I am in the Navy also. Then the sailor seemed to make up his mind about something. He saluted Lawrence through and pointed him towards a small building off to the side of the fire. The building looked only like a wall glowing in the firelight, but sometimes a barrage of magnesium blue light made its window frames jump out of the darkness, a rectangular lightning bolt that echoed many times across the night. Lawrence started pedaling again and rode past that building, a spiraling flock of alert fedoras, prodding at slim terse notebooks with stately ticonderogas, crab-walking photogs turning their huge chrome daisies, crisp rows of people sleeping with blankets over their faces, a sweating man with brilliantined hair chalking umlauted names on a blackboard. Finally, coming around this building, he smelled hot fuel oil, felt the heat of the flames on his face, and saw beach grass curled toward it and desiccated. And I was just like, skip, 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 let's get back to the plot, skip, come on, come on, let's get past all this, like, reverie. I'm I, I not just, here for the beauty, just, I'm here for the motherfucking plot. I'm just, it's just also, I've just, like, read so much of this, Neil. Like, this is, like, I've been reading it in Snow Crash, like, breathing liquid aminos, I was reading it in in moments of Diamond Age, and it's also like, I'm tired of having to try to figure out whether it's a dream or hallucination or not. I think it was a dream. I think so, too. Um, I, I struggled with it. Yeah. And... Dude, the, the audiobook is hard for this book because mm. it really does shift back and forth mm. a lot from now and then um, waking time and right. dreaming time. Right. And this was one of those where I was like, I had to listen to this a couple times. Yeah. And it's look, it's I mean, come on. It's great writing, right? Lawrence started pedaling. He's describing rode past that building, a spiraling flock of alert fedoras prodding at slim terse notebooks with stately Ticonderogas. Ticonderoga being a pencil manufacturer. I mean, I get that image. I, that pops in my brain. Crab walking photogs turning their huge chrome daisies. I, again, chrome daisies, that's the, 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 the flash. The flash. Yeah. So photographer, you know, I mean, it's beautiful. It's lovely. It's poetic. And I'm just like, don't care. <laughs> don't care. Move it along. Move it along. What happens with the Alan Turing? What's going on? <laughs> it's funny. I feel like I'm, uh, I I am more reading for those sections mm. and the plot sections. I'm just like, oh, give me a fucking break. <laughs> well, <laughs> and this gets to my next question. Can we really say that this book has plot? Or is it really just a bunch of protagonists on a roller coaster ride? Is this really a plotted novel with protagonists who take action and grow and change? Or is it travel writing and World War II cryptography history disguised as a novel. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I think, you know, whatever, you know, roller coaster, um, a mansion of cards instead of a house of cards, right. or, or I think there's actually even a section in here where it talks about multiple houses of cards, though I, I, I'm not sure if I'm picking that up from somewhere else. Don't recall. Yeah, I mean, so we've noted this before about Stevenson. Um, there is a lot of setup and knockdown. And this feels like so much setup. Yeah. And it um and a lot of the time I'm I feel a little jerked around. Like I think there are whole chapters in what we read where I'm like, this doesn't need to be here. Yeah. Um and you know, and I, I I get it. There are writers out there for whom an editor is an affront. Yeah. <laughs> and I think 
I'm sure Stevenson has an editor. I'm sure they work really well together. Um, you know, apologies, Stevenson's editor, if you're like, no, <laughs> I worked so hard on those books. But I, I really do think like somebody could be like, hey, you could really chop a few hundred pages out of this. There's not much of an incentive at this point in Stevenson's career for an editor to do that because these books were selling. I know. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, yeah, and I guess I sort of my complaint and why I, I did find this book incredibly entertaining because it was introducing to me to a lot of ideas I hadn't really known about or thought about. And and he does have a, a number. I have a, I have a passage marked. He has a number of wonderful analogies to help you understand early computing, the cryptography, wonderful moments also of little surreal things like this guy named Comstock sitting around looking for a bunch of punch card machines that were shipped to Australia that he can't find, which is just one of those chapters where you're like, what the hell is this doing in here? And you eventually learn that all over the globe, various people were building very rudimentary computers to solve the problem of how you crack a code like the Enigma uh, machine code, where every single missive could have millions and millions of possible solutions. And basically, you just need a computer to run through every single possible solution until one of them seems to be spitting out something that seems like human language. Yeah. And the original meaning. code breaking was just brute force. It was just, just brute forcing everything. It was just like, what could all these things mean? Yeah. And I, I think also, probably it does include, you know, a certain amount of like, once you figure out one or two words, and if you understand how the Enigma machine works, then you can... Uh, deduce the rest of the code based on that because you're able to essentially imagine the state of the gears mm -hmm. of the Enigma machine and therefore sort of recreate it yeah. and create the code that way. And that's what I, you know, one of the things I do love about this book mm -hmm. is the way, is the, the concept of, of basically reverse engineering physical things from abstract ideas. And yeah. that's something that he keeps coming back to. Yeah. Um, one of the sections, uh, Lawrence sees a section of computing tape being uh, burned by the machine that is analyzing it. Right. And he realizes, oh, that's intentional. Like, basically, information is traveling from the physical to the ethereal. Right. Um, and, and that's really interesting. Like, that touches on ideas of, like, the sublime and the divine and, like, all of this really cool stuff. And I do see why that is interesting, but I am tired. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of words. Um, and I'm not enjoying it as much as I did when I read it the first time when I couldn't put it down. I, yeah. And I agreed. I'm going to get through it just fine. I don't mind reading it. And, and there are moments that are truly delightful. I think actually you and I were listening in the car last night and there was something we both laughed about. And I don't even remember what it was. It was some lovely analogy. And there's just a number of lovely moments. And then... I think the uh, the sort of rollicking adventures of Bobby Shafto are always fun, and yeah. he's a fun character. And I also enjoy Randy's sort of, you know, bemused wanderings through the tropics, sort of observing international business taking place, you yeah. know, at a luxury hotel and various airports and stuff like that, and interacting with these Japanese businessmen. So there's enough going on, again, to kind of keep me reading and not, I'm not bored by it but i am also it, i'm not enjoying it as much as i once did and i i do think having read recent stevenson that i think he's gotten better because i think he'll now write a book that has just as many ideas 
And then also characters who are going through something, who are evolving, who are changing yeah. in, a, in a way that you haven't really seen a lot of up to this point. No. I mean, there's that, there's that great old uh, Grace Paley cliche. Uh, I don't know, cliche or lesson to live by, but the, uh, the um, uh, all people real imagined to deserve the open possibilities of life. Yeah. And I think if Grace Paley is like at one end, this is, this makes a lot of sense. Like you would put Grace Paley on one end of a spectrum and Neil Stevenson at the very far other end. And I think the actual approach is somewhere in the middle, because if you do just let your characters have the open possibilities of life, you have really boring books and short stories because they just do the things that we do in life. Right. And I think what you're saying is that Stevenson of this era doesn't let his characters really have the open possibilities of life. They are on a roller coaster <laughs> or a railroad. Um, he's, he's kind of the, uh, he's sort of like the 13 year old dungeon master that is like, fuck you players. Yeah, you're... We're, we're going to, we're going to end up in this room. Yeah. And, and every time you try to go somewhere else, like an infinitely powerful being is going to say, you really want to go <laughs> out of here right now. Yeah. He's, <laughs> there he's is like, no choice. You are living in my novel motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> and like that is that is what Stevenson is doing in this book. And again, like we've said so many times, brilliant sentences. Oh yeah. So much fun. And it is an interesting set of ideas. Like the and and you know, that book, that movie with um uh, Benedict Cumberbatch was interesting, but if you had already read this book, you're like, there's nothing new here. I yeah. mean, other than how terribly Alan Turing was treated, which is its own tragedy and a, a story, you know, worth worth telling. Well, let's uh, let's keep moving. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I wanted to do a short. You brought up some of this stuff already, and we yeah. already danced around it. Yeah. The the kind of sexism, racism, anti intellectualism in this yeah. book is getting. I feel worse um, from Zodiac and Snow Crash. And rather than spending a bunch of time decrying it or figuring out whether it's right or wrong, um, we've talked about the fact that Stevenson, these probably aren't his personal politics. Um, And what he's doing is reflecting a kind of historical verisimilitude of like Bobby Shafto says like nips and wops and dagos. There's a lot of derogatory language. Right. you know, do we go as writers in the direction of recounting real things that people say, regardless of how awful they are, uh, or in the direction of of being sensitive about these things? I am I'm kind of ambivalent about this. I worry that if you go too much in either direction, bad things will happen. But like a lot of things, if you make a lot of compromises, you might end up with a kind of a fan servicey novel in terms of really focusing on being overly sensitive. So I'm wondering where you are kind of landing on that. You know, I wasn't going to read this, but I'm going to, based on what you just said, I'm going to do a short reading. Um, This is a lot of readings today. Could be. Um, This is from a moment where Randy encounters an older Japanese man in the lavatory. Uh, and has a, a relatively cordial conversation with him. Um, he's been reading this book about the history of Guadalcanal, um, and he has this he has this little reflection on what makes a word racist or not. So he says, "This is this is the reading." Nip is the word used by Sergeant Sean Daniel McGee, U.S. Army, retired to refer to Nipponese people in his war memoir about Kinakuta. 
a photocopy of which Randy is carrying in his bag. It is a terrible racist slur. On the other hand, people call British people Brits and Yankees Yanks all the time. Calling a Nipponese person a nip is just the same thing, isn't it? Or is it tantamount to calling a Chinese person a chink? During the hundreds of hours of meetings and megabytes of encrypted email messages that Randy, Avi, John Cantrell, Tom Howard, Eberhard Four, and Beryl have exchanged, getting Epiphyte 2 off the ground, each of them has occasionally, inadvertently, used the word Jap as shorthand for Japanese, in the same way as they use RAM to mean random access memory. But of course, Jap is a horrible racist slur too. Randy figures it all has to do with your state of mind at the time you utter the word. If you're just trying to abbreviate, it's not a slur. But if you are fomenting racist hatreds, as Sean Daniel McGee occasionally seems to be not above doing, that's different. That's Randy Waterhouse's pondering and his ambivalence about racist language. And I just, he's wrong yeah, <laughs> about that. I, um, I, because yeah. what, he, what he's not taking into account is are the thoughts of the feelings of the people who are actually vulnerable to that racist language who are being abbreviated who are being abbreviated <laughs> um and it yes it's true that somebody who is not a bigot who intends no harm might occasionally utter racist language inadvertently that does happen in the world but however i think there's a moral imperative when you realize you're doing that to stop it um, and I, I guess to answer your question, I think it's fine for an author to use that language in a historical accurate way. I think there's some people who would disagree with it. What I don't like is that Stevenson seems to be having a little too much fun with it. Yeah, I think you're right. That's... And I think he sort of knows there's some people out there who aren't going to like this language and I'm going to kind of piss them off a little bit. He's got a bit of a, a troll to yeah. him. And that, that, that really came up for me in the California chapters where Randy yeah. early on is kind of pitted against um, some sort of effete intellectuals. Right. Um, I, I really, I really despise anti-intellectualism, um, which puts me in a smaller camp than the rest of the world. I think. <laughs> um, because I think there is nothing wrong with reading deeply into things. And I, I really hate how the word intellectual has become a pejorative. I, I don't think Stevenson is actually being anti-intellectual. I think he is being anti-academic. And I think he's being anti-academic against a certain stereotype of what academics can be like, grounded in some truth, but yes. that is definitely exaggerated in this particular anecdote in the book. Mm -hmm. And I think exaggerated potentially in Stevenson's mind as well, in many people's mind as well. Certainly academia can be about gotcha politics and about who has the correct language and to the point where that sort of thing can take over the substance of the intellectual discourse. And so the argument that Randy and this academic are having, Randy's basically saying, you don't know anything about what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and the academic is saying, you're privileged. And they're actually kind of both right about that, <laughs> I think, in that discussion. Although to read it, it seems like maybe Stevenson's giving Randy the uh, the, 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 the nod yeah. as the more correct of the two, which I think I would disagree with. Yeah, totally. I mean, like tone of voice is, I mean, tone of voice always was the thing that I tried to teach the students I taught. Like, the, that's the thing you have to pay most attention to. It is literally the author's attitude towards the subject material. And like, 
and the tone of voice in that section is very pro Randy and very anti academia yeah. or intellectual. Um, and it just, it feels like some trolling, like yeah. you were saying. And yeah. it, it, um, I don't know. I guess it's one of those, uh, it's, it's one of those things. Like if we go back to, uh, like, uh, George Orwell's good faith and bad faith, mm-hmm. um, that you can, you usually can feel bad faith. Like you might not be able to directly point to it, but you can sense it. And I think there's some moments in this book and in Stevenson's depictions of race and gender and mm-hmm. sexuality mm-hmm. and everything like that. That's kind of in bad faith. Yeah. Um, I, I would, I'm, if this stuff were presented in good faith and that would probably be very hard. Um, I don't think I would feel as bad about it. Yeah, but I don't know. It's it's a tough one because I also understand that if you take things too far in the sensitivity direction, you are setting up a kind of tyranny of thought in that way as well. Yeah, but I I think he it's another type of immaturity and insensitivity on display. And I'm tired of I'm not I don't want to defend him. I don't think he is a bigot, um, but I think he's being very insensitive and. Um, I don't like it. And, I, you know, if Stevenson were to continue along the, in that trajectory as a writer, I think I would want to stop reading him. I do think he has matured somewhat in, in recent years. I'd be excited to come back around to him at some point. Yeah. Because I well, haven't read the later stuff, and I, I'm, I'm interested to. But I also think it's an open question of whether he's matured or not or just gotten better at sort of hiding it. Uh, I think that is an interesting question. Yeah. All right, I've got a reading sure. um, about, uh, um, let's see, page 149 in my, um, and so this, the, the, I'm reading this as another section of like, ah, this is like yeah. my, my, my love of Stevenson. Um, so uh, the title of this chapter is called Meat. Oh, yes. Okay, so Private First Class Gerald Hot late of Chicago, Illinois, did not exactly shoot up through the ranks during his 15-year tenure in the United States Army. He did, however, carve a bitchin' loin roast. He was as deft with a boning knife as Bobby Shafto is with a bayonet. And who is to say that a military butcher, by conserving the limited resources of a steer's carcass and by scrupulously observing the mandated sanitary practices might not save as many lives as a steely-eyed warrior. The military is not just about killing nips, krauts, and dagos. It is also about killing livestock and eating them. Gerald Hott was a frontline warrior who kept his freezer locker as clean as an operating room, and so it is only fitting that he has ended up there. Bobby Shafto makes this little elegy up in his head as he is shivering in the subarctic chill of a formerly French and now U.S. Army meat locker the size and temperature of Greenland, surrounded by the earthly remains of several herds of cattle and one butcher. I love this. It's yeah. um, it, it, like we were talking about it yesterday. It's structured like a joke. Um, and the punchline of which is that Private First Class Gerald Hot is dead. Ha uh-huh. <laughs> ha. Um, but the, 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 the setup, private first class, Gerald Hott, late of Chicago, Illinois, nice little clue about where we're heading without tipping, tipping his hand. Um, there's some poetry in here. He was as deft with a bony knife as Bobby Shafto is with a bayonet. 
and and an insight too. Um, if I remember, Bobby also sort of thinks to himself, maybe being a good butcher and helping, you know, an army marches on its stomach, uh, is every bit as important as being good with a bayonet. Yeah. How does he put that exactly? Um, uh, who is to say that a military butcher, by conserving the limited resources of a steer's carcass and by scrupulously observing the mandated sanitary practices, might not save as many lives as a steely-eyed warrior? Yeah, lovely. Yeah, and it, I mean, you know, like you're saying, we move from what we think is objective description into oh, we're back in third-person Shafto narration, yeah. um, and it's it's it is deft and it's quick and it is effective. Uh, it's enjoyable and it is funny. Um, and it's good characterization too, because again, as we said earlier, Bobby Shafto is a Marine's Marine. You know, he's legendary. He starts this wonderful brawl in Shanghai with a <laughs> bunch of right. Japanese soldiers. Over and, sushi. Over sushi. <laughs> but then what makes him different is that he actually enjoys the sushi, is genuinely curious about it, and then makes friends with one of the Japanese soldiers who he fights with because he wants to learn that soldier's uh, judo. Bobby seems to be both like, you know, he is a, a well-trained killing machine and loyal, but he also understands that the other soldiers are people like him, that the world is an interesting place, and that, you know, what he has been told, maybe there's another way of looking at things, too. And, um, and that, you know, makes him a very fun character because he's wry, observant, um, and, you know, also a good badass for sort of swashbuckling adventure things that need to happen at various times on submarines or with machine guns and yeah. things like that. I wasn't actually planning on doing this, but I just also wanted to share one other thing that I really liked about this. This is going to be a tricky reading. Um, this is a section where um, in England at Bletchley Park, the uh, uh, Lawrence and Alan Turing go for a bike ride. And this is like one of the few times they bump into each other after Princeton, uh, page 165 on my edition. And they're riding along. Alan Turing is wearing a gas mask, which is apparently based on a real historical anecdote because he suffers from hay fever in the spring, which is a very Alan Turing-like way of handling hay fever. Um, and Alan Turing, every so often, is reaching down and making a slight adjustment to his bike chain. And we're made to understand that he has a slightly weak uh, chain link in one of his links, and that he also has a um, bent spoke. And that normally neither of those problems are a problem except for when in the cycling of the bicycling, uh, the spoke is aligned with the chain link that's weak and then the chain breaks. Uh, and, and and he has to fix it. But Turing is apparently is such an avid or such a smart guy that he can kind of keep track of when that's going to happen at any given time. And he knows, you know, even as he's conducting a conversation, exactly when to reach down and adjust his bike chain to keep that from happening. Um, the setup that I've just given you has been described. And then Stevenson goes on to write, based upon reasonable assumptions about the velocity that can be maintained by Dr. Turing, an energetic bikes, bicyclist, let us say 25 kilometers an hour, in the radius of his bicycle's rear wheel, a third of a meter, if the chain's weak link hit the bent spoke on every revolution, the chain would fall off every one-third of a second. In fact, the chain doesn't fall off unless the bent spoke and weak link happen to coincide. 
Now, suppose you describe the position of the rear wheel by the traditional theta. Just for the sake of simplicity, say that when the wheel starts in the position where the bent spoke is capable of hitting the weak link, albeit only if the weak link happens to be there to be hit, then theta equals zero. If you're using degrees as your unit, then during a single revolution of the wheel, theta will climb all the way up to 359 degrees before cycling back towards zero, at which point the bent spoke will be back in position to knock the chain off. And now suppose that you describe the position of the chain with the variable C in the following very simple way. You assign a number to each link on the chain. The weak link is numbered zero, the next is one, and so on, up to L minus one, where L is the total number of links in the chain. And again, for simplicity's sake, say that when the chain is in the position where its weak link is capable of being hit by the bent spoke, albeit only if the bent spoke happens to be there to hit it, then C equals zero. And on, and on, for another one, two, three, four pages of this. And I have to say, I was listening to this as an audiobook and I was cooking and I was maybe one cocktail into my, uh, my occasional evening and cocktails routine and I did not follow it. I understood the analogy the, uh, the analogy had something to do with the Enigma machine, the, the sort of mechanical machine that the German submarines use to, to uh, encrypt their code. But the second time, I went back and read it, and the second time, I got it. I understood the whole thing, and there were even moments where he said, and that value would be, and I would say to myself, 360, or 10. And I was right, and I actually followed it. And how brilliant of Neil Stevenson to create this little parable, yeah. the parable of the bent spoke, you know, in, involving his two characters in a way that allows a not very great math guy to actually listen twice or read twice and be like, I think I now understand how an Enigma machine works. Yeah. And that is just, it's just one of the things I love about this book. And it was not boring when I read it the first time. Yes, I was a little bit confused the second time, but I was a bit impaired. Um, and going back to it in a less impaired state, I followed it perfectly well. And I think it's just brilliant. Yeah, I love it too. And it's, it's I think it is... Um... These, the, these are the moments that Stevenson is kind of working to get to all of the time, but he enjoys set pieces. Mm, right. And, and he's good at set pieces. Right. Like that is one of his strengths. Um, and that is why I find, I think of him as sort of like a fiendish dungeon master. Yeah. Who is like, I have made this amazing thing. Just, just come with me. No, and it's true. And there's nothing... I very rarely does anything happen in a Stevenson novel or a Stevenson plot where you cannot vividly visualize the landscape or room it's happening in. Exactly. Yeah. You always know where you are. And yeah, I mean, same thing. I, um, I really wish I had experienced this book a little earlier in life. Um, I, I kind of bumped into it when like my ability to learn math was, was past me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like, after double majoring in the humanities and like, and then, you know, going to graduate school for something like more humanities, I really wish I understood more math. Um, I, you know, I ride a bicycle. I know what's happening here. Yep. You know, like there, like I understand gear inches. That's something you do for track cycling. Right. Um, and uh, him kind of connecting math with like something very concrete that I understand. I'm like, oh, why didn't Mrs. Lewis 
like give me this in junior year honors two algebra yeah. um, instead of you know just abstracted quadratic equations. Probably because Mrs. Lewis hadn't read it. <laughs> that would be well, my... didn't exist in 1996. <laughs> she didn't so. have a time machine. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, and I don't think Neil Stevenson was going to parachute into Central Massachusetts to teach my motherfucking. Yeah. Math class. Although he spent some time there, as we know from That's right. um, yeah. uh, Zodiac. That's yeah. true. He probably wasn't too far he away. He was crawling when, around sewage pipes like doing research. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's h- hanging out in some some uh, giant Victorian manor, like huffing nitrous with his buddies. Um, before, um, before we go to trivia, there's mm-hmm. one thing, and, and we don't need to spend much time on this. Sure. Uh, I noticed that he is playing around with a kind of personalization mm. that we don't see in other places in Stevenson so far. Um, there is a section when uh, Lawrence Waterhouse uh, arrives at Bletchley Park and has what is described as like this massive duffel bag right. um, that Stevenson just begins calling duffel. Ah. Uh, and it's like, Lawrence tries to manhandle Duffel out of the and, it's, and it becomes a character. Right, right. Um, and then not too long after that, uh, Bobby Shafto is on the beach in Guadalcanal um, attempting to kill some Japanese soldiers with a fragmentation grenade and begins to begins referring to the grenade just simply as pineapple. Right. Um, he, he slots pineapple into the grenade launcher. And it's this like level of whimsy that we haven't really seen from Stevenson before, but I really enjoyed. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's it's also characterization. You're, it puts you sort of into those characters a little bit more because that is, you know, you are going to start the same way that I have probably started to personify my folding bike as I've been hauling it around airport lounges, and and I'm just like, come on, bike, <laughs> you know. Here we- you got to come up with a different name than bike. You got to yeah. call it like a, Foldy, it's not a, Foldy McFoldy. Foldy, <laughs> like Foldy. Uh, a friend of mine, one of our one McFoldy of our listeners, uh, owns a uh, inflatable raft that she and her partner refer to as Rafty McRaft face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm. Not, I don't think I would go with the uh, McFold face, but uh, yeah, I'll keep thinking about that. It's a shame that you don't. It's not a Brompton because you could just call it Brompton. Or Charles Brompton. Straight out of Brompton. (laughs) Charles, both of those would be great. Charles Brompton. Charles Brompton. Uh, One more thing I do want to point out, another little just delightful moment is how uh, in the, um, if you listen to the book, you're not necessarily aware of this, but in the print version of the book, uh, the British pronunciation of Lawrence Waterhouse's surname is written out as W-O-E space T-O space H-I-C-E, Wotaheis. And there's this moment where Lawrence, it takes Lawrence a while to figure out that Wotaheis is in fact him, <laughs> Lawrence, and that this is the English way of saying his name that we here in America would say Waterhouse. It's another, it's another Stevenson-esque construction where the main character doesn't understand some jargon right. that is being tossed around that is then unfolded in front of him. Right. Um, YT and the Metacops, um, Judge Fang and his two assistants. Uh, this, this is just a theme for, for Stevenson. He loves the hiding and then the revealing of jargon. It, I mean, the, Lawrence Waterhouse around the same time is having a hard time remembering who Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt are. <laughs> these two chaps who seem to be talking on the, the radio a lot. <laughs> Yeah, shall we get into trivia? Yeah, let's do some trivia. We've got, uh, you know, we've got about seven hundred more pages of this book to cover for our next two episodes. So, uh, 
I mean, also, uh, the one thing I guess I'll say before we get to that is that, I mean, I am saying, I've said this thing about roller coaster characters. You've talked about the House of Cards. In both cases, two protagonists to whom things happen as opposed to who change and take action. But we have a whole two-thirds of this book left. So we may be wrong about that. Sure. There, and I think that will be a thing I'll be reading for is to see exactly. See if Bobby, see if Lawrence, or see if Randy at some point change yeah. or real have some realization or take action in some meaningful way to yeah. make this a traditional story. <laughs> um, do you want to go first? With yeah, sure. I'll go first. Um, so, um, all right. There is a uh, particularly kind of gross moment. Uh, Lawrence arrives at Bletchley Park. Uh, it's, it's when he is wrestling Duffel up, mm. the, um, up mm. the, the platform. Mm. Um, and he kind of has to navigate the day shift of all of the women who work at Bletchley Park helping to uh, decode um, mm -hmm. the Enigma machine transmissions. Um, and uh, their makeup is described. Oh, yes. Um, because in wartime, um, all of the ingredients that would normally have gone into 1940s makeup is being used somewhere else. This is this is similar to your uh, condiment trivia question. You're right. From the diamond oh my age. God. Interesting. <laughs> I'm detecting a theme here. <laughs> uh, it is pretty gross. Um, the uh, ingredients used for lipstick during wartime, uh, tailings and gristle, uh, all the good bits used to grease propeller shafts or something like that. So what was a real substitute in women's beauty that was deployed during wartime rationing. Mm. Was it A, stocking seams that were drawn directly onto the legs uh, because nylon was scarce, shorter and higher skirt lines due to fabric shortages, substituting synthetic wax for a substitute, uh, for a, a substance that was harvested from the head of a sperm whale, or D, all of the above. I think it's all of the above. You're right. Um, You're talking about ambergris. Uh, yeah, a spermaceti. Oh, sper <laughs> spermaceti. <laughs> Which I read and was like, what? Uh, yeah, well, they, it's, it's a misnomer. Um, they thought it was sperm. Um, right. But, um, yeah, and I, I, I'm aware of the drawing of the um, the lines. I didn't know about the shorter hem lines, but uh, based on photos I've seen, that makes sense. And it you know, sort of predated the miniskirt of the 1950s. It surprised me, that one. Yeah. That, out of those three, I was like... Huh. That was the one I was the least confident about, but yeah. I, I knew about the other two. Yeah. Um, all right, that's mine. Excellent, excellent. Um, okay, so what I have for you is um, in the last chapter of this section, um, there's essentially a pitch that's being made to the Sultan of Kinakota to allow um, his country to be turned into a data haven. And I got kind of curious about data havens in general and did some research to see if such a thing really existed. And I was able to discover that, as far as I can tell, only one nation in history has sort of expressed interest in becoming a data haven. Um, is that nation, A, the Maldives, B, Luxembourg, C, Iceland, or D, St. Helena, Ascension, and Tristan da Cunha? which is three islands that are in a personal union off the coast of Africa. 
We got the Maldives. The Maldives. Luxembourg. Luxembourg. Iceland. Iceland. St. Helena, Ascension, and Tristan de Cunha. One nation. Hmm. I was really hoping that you were going to bring up Tuvalo mm. as one of the options. Um, the source of the funniest um, URL, um, .tv, which everybody thinks is about television programming, mm. but is actually um, any oh. .tv is uh, housed. Basically, in- they're making they're making some money on the fact that TV is a uh, an appendage to yeah. a website that Americans might want. Exactly. Or Brits. Yeah. Um, which is which was great. So I was really hoping it was one of those, yeah. and um, and now I'm I'm being, uh, now I'm being drawn in the direction of. God, would Iceland actually want to be a data haven? Where are the Maldives? I believe they are also off the coast of Africa. In are the they Indian a Canary Ocean. Island? Or are they on the other, other side? side? I want to say they're in the Indian Ocean, maybe halfway between the mainland of Africa and the, and the subcontinent or something. I'm like. going to go with D because it is the strangest and most outlandish name. St. Helena, Ascension, and Tristan de Cunha. No, it is Iceland. <sighs> oh, I should have and, gone with my original impulse. And so interestingly, and I, I, I think Stevenson might have even had something to do with that. Uh-huh. But sort of in the Chelsea Manning um, and uh, who was the other one? Um, Snowden? Snowden sort of era. There was some talk about how whistleblowers needed a a data haven, a data haven, a place to leak vital information where it couldn't be traced back to them. And in fact, John Perry Barlow, one of the founders of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who I suspect has bumped into Stevenson a few times, (laughs) also the second lyricist of the Grateful Dead after Robert Hunter um, and an early computer enthusiast, uh, suggested this at a speech he gave in Iceland, and the government put out some press release saying that they were actually going to look into it. No. Um, but it didn't happen, and I think the reason it didn't happen is I don't think you need a geographical data haven. Uh, I think you. I think there are ways of um, encrypting point-to-point yeah. data um, anywhere. Yeah, um, at this point, the cloud is probably your data haven. It probably can be. And, um, you know, you... you you would have the same, even if you had a geographical location to send your data to, you have to send it from somewhere and that, you know, the government can tap into that. Yeah. So the only solution is cryptography. It is not putting the data somewhere where nobody to, uh, can get to it because um, people can uh, intercept you taking it yeah. there. Which I think is, you know, to like bring it back around to the themes of this book, even though Avi and Randy are engaged in setting up a data haven. Yeah, I think this book is about um, the sublimity of information, uh, about mm. how it, it it can for Stevenson it occupies almost a kind of divine realm. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean I also think he sees all sorts of parallels between information, currency, and digital computerized information and other forms of record keeping. We think about the Namshub of Enki, right, which was uh, um, immortalized on clay, what, 
scrolls, tablets Tablets. of some kind, and the virus is contained on those tablets. And we think, oh, no, a virus is something that, like, it's inside your computer, man. It's digital. Um, And he's sort of pointing out that all these distinctions that we draw between different kind of information are actually not as meaningful as we think they are. They are meaningful, Mm -hmm. but they are basically all the same thing. Yeah, that information is the thing, and it doesn't matter. Its medium doesn't matter. Right. It matters for particular applications, yeah. but it doesn't matter as you say, almost in a kind of spiritual religious yeah, sense. Yeah, I really think that that's, I mean, that's, you know, now that we've been bathed in him for a while, we're starting to get kind of the, uh, um, the gospel of Neil. Well, you note that in the chapter where he introduces uh, Lawrence Waterhouse, it starts with something like leaving aside the existence of God for another novel. Yeah. And I actually think some of the later novels, he stops leaving that aside and starts thinking about it a little bit more openly, although yeah. still in a kind of uh, sub rosa sort of tacit way yeah. uh, in some cases, too. Um, so do you want to tell our listeners what's happening next? Absolutely. So uh, next time we will be um, considering the second third of uh, Neil Stevenson's Cryptonomicon. Um, and um, yeah. That's what's happening next. That's what's happening next. Um, Thank you all so much for listening. Um, As always, we would love it if you gave us a five-star rating. If you want to give us a rating less than that, why not send us an email with constructive criticism? You can do that at jpd at uppermiddlebrow.com or b-a-double-g at uppermiddlebrow.com. Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bagg and Jesse Dukes are the producers, the creators, and the charming hosts. Music comes from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. <clears throat> you can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. And we want to thank all the people who listened to our pilot episodes and gave us feedback, including Justin Reich, Catherine Nagasawa, Adam Brock, and Robert Lorzell. Jenny we'll Grieve s- and Josh Lieberlis. And thanks to them, too. And we will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Fucker.